0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be talking all about music education, and we are going to be hearing from two very big music advocates, Ginny and Felice Mancini. Welcome to the Music History Project. where your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over four thousand interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org/library.
1: Hi, and welcome back to another episode. And uh, if you're thinking. That Mancini name sounds a little familiar. Uh, yeah, it's that Mancini. It's Henry Mancini. Uh, this is the wife of Henry Mancini, as well as the daughter, talking about their uh, important roles of music education and uh, the just the fantastic uh, work that they've done in promoting all of that. You know, we're, they're going to talk a little bit right now about uh, Henry Mancini. They're dad and husband but uh just when we were talking about that and his his catalog is insane you know you might not know all of it off of the top of your head or even when you're looking at the list of the of the songs but you know his work uh definitely and that's kind of how i felt as i was scrolling through and looking at everything uh i'm gonna steal dan's favorite which would be the pink panther but we can have the same one can't we
2: well, OK, um mine is definitely the Pink Panther, but I will also say that, I mean, the guy wrote some amazing music. And can you imagine those motion pictures without the music that he created? I mean, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Moon River, I mean, come on. It's just unbelievable. It's like the movie was written for that song almost. I mean, that's how incredible uh, that was, uh, you know, a part of each other there. I mean, just incredible. And a very talented arranger going way back to the big band era. I mean, just a, just a wonderful talent. An institution in music, I think, is a good way of putting Henry Mancini. Um, so the Pink Panther is one of my favorites because when I was a kid learning the saxophone, I kept trying and trying to be as cool as Plas Johnson, who plays that great lick. Um, I never got as cool as him, but I could hit all the notes. So, um.
0: <laughs> And to fit in, I'm going to also say that the Pink Panther is my favorite by him. But I encourage you to check out his discography, because if you start scrolling, it just keeps going and going. And it's unreal how much he worked on. So let's jump right into these interviews. Uh, we're going to be hearing from Ginny and Felice. Ginny's uh, going to be talking about meeting Henry. Um, and Felice is going to be talking about what it was like growing up in the Mancini family.
2: We're so grateful that you both had taken some time for us. I really appreciate it. Thank
3: you. I will. I when Nam asks, I say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nam has been very good to me, and I love. Uh, I love the people there. It's like family. So oh,
2: that's great. So, yep. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, one of the things that is really intriguing to us is where people's passion for music comes from. And I wonder, maybe we can start with you, Mrs. Mancini. Uh, Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up?
4: I was raised in a Mexican home. I am Mexican in my heritage, and there was music all the time. Everybody in my family played something, and uh, it was just part of my DNA. So,
2: and did you as as a child? Did you have ambitions of being a singer?
4: No, I didn't. Um, My mother took me to the piano and pointed out middle C for me, and I started to fool around on the piano and decided that I loved tinkling with it. I loved the music that it made, and and as a child, it was pretty simple. But I gradually began to really appreciate the great American songbook. My mother uh, demonstrated sheet music in the local Five and Dime. They had a huge sheet music department and and a raised stage and people would hear something on the radio and they'd pick out a piece of sheet music and they'd hand it to my mother and she would demonstrate it and then buy it and take it home. So I was really raised on every standard you can probably think about.
2: (laughs) I bet. That's really interesting. Where was the Five and Dime located?
4: Manchester in Vermont.
2: <laughs> wow, location, no less. Wow.
4: Well, it was a beautiful neighborhood at the time, and uh, that was my playground. Uh, that intersection—that's where I went to school. It's where I lived, and uh, the rest is history.
2: So <laughs> <laughs> did you take piano lessons? <clears throat>
4: No, my mother couldn't afford to pay for any lessons. As a matter of fact, I used to dance, and she played piano in exchange for my dancing lessons. So it was a tough time. It was during the Depression. We were very poor, but we we made it through. It was okay.
2: That's neat. And tell me just a little bit. I know you have so many great stories, I'm sure, about uh, your career as a singer, but I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that got started.
4: Well, when I left high school, I decided I wanted to be the best secretary I could be, so I went to L.A. City College and enrolled in a business course. And in the afternoon, I enrolled in a mixed chorus, and there I found friends who we're so turned on by modern harmony, vocal harmonies, and we would get together every day and sing. And Mel Torme heard us, hired us, and we became Mel Torme and the Meltones. That was the beginning.
2: That's terrific. Now, was there a Meltones group before you?
4: No. No. Mel had just come out from Chicago. He was seventeen years old. And he was looking for singers that he could do arrangements for and show off his chops at arranging, and he he could do everything. He was a great singer, drummer, songwriter, arranger, but that was the beginning.
2: That's really fascinating. I love listening to some of those recordings, too. That was a lot of fun, I'm sure.
4: It was great. It was a great time. uh, Actually, it was during the war years, (laughs) the Second World War. So we were entertaining, um, you know, officers' clubs, uh, armed forces radio shows. Uh, We were very much in demand. And um, it was three and a half years of heaven.
2: Now, how did you meet uh, your husband?
4: When Mel Torme had to make a career choice to focus on being a solo performer, um, the vocal group was not going to be around much longer. And somebody said to me, well, Tex Beneke is in town. He's looking for a singer. Why don't you go audition? And having nothing better to do, I went down there, and the young man playing piano for the auditions was a tall handsome Italian kid. He was only 22. His name was Henry Mancini, and he was not happy because the rest of the band had a day off. They were on the golf course, and he had to stay behind and play for all of us, auditioning. And as luck would have it, I got hired, and we uh, fell in love, eventually. (laughs) Anyway, we were married a year later.
2: Wow. Terrific. And not long after, someone shows up.
3: <laughs> Hello! <laughs> a chip off the old block. Yes. Yes. Well, Me sure. and my sister, my twin sister. So two of us came at the same
2: time. <laughs> and what was it like growing up in this home?
3: Well, you know, it was a pretty normal San Fernando Valley uh, upbringing. You know, it was. Um, in the 50s and 60s, the best time to be alive. And uh, it, was, it was fun, it was a nice warm family home. I guess to others it looked a little different because my parents did such interesting things and my mom at that time, she was um, doing a lot of TV shows, singing on all the variety shows and there were many at that time. So that was fun watching her on TV and then my dad would be out composing in his room but for us it was all very normal. So it was, it, was, uh, it was nice growing up. Yeah, and we all sang too. I mean, we all got the, the vocal genes. So we'd have a good time harmonizing and, and singing. A lot of nice musical times.
2: That's wonderful. Yeah, I, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, which I guess is skipping a few years here, is the uh, sometimes.
3: <laughs> yeah. Would you
2: mind telling me that story?
3: First year of college, I went away for the first time to the University of Denver. And, you know, come Christmas time, oh God, what do we get for mom and dad? You know, and it was like, very difficult. Uh, So I was just, I just got inspired. I wrote this little poem. And I put my my freshman photograph on one side and on the other side. I wrote out the, the poem and I gave it to them. And which was, you know, the best thing you could do. I I imagine, as a parent, you were quite touched.
4: Very touched.
3: And um, so I just went along my merry way in school, and and the next thing I know, my dad had written a little melody, and he he had a singer come in and do a demo of this song, and he called it Sometimes. And he happened to be in the studio recording it when the Carpenters were next door recording their biggest album of all time called Carpenters, and it was at RCA. And they needed a little something to put at the end of the record because they needed to fill some time. So uh, I'm not exactly sure how it worked, but they, they heard the tune and they uh, put it on the record. And it's very simply done by Karen. It's the last track on the, on the album, just piano and her vocal. And that's the story of sometimes. Got me into ASCAP. And uh, I still get little, you know, seventy-five cent checks for it, <laughs> but it was it was very nice, and it's been recorded by some some uh, some nice people. And I still, to this day, get letters and emails from people where they've used it either in their wedding, uh, you know, graduation, at funerals. I mean, the I guess the the words just resonate on many levels for people. You know, it's about just thanking people. That you don't get a chance to, you just don't say it often enough. So, it was, it was a good thing. Many many years later, it's it still has legs. So.
2: Yeah. Did you collaborate with your father on anything else?
3: You know, he did, he did uh, ask me to, to do a couple things, and we did nothing. Uh, that I would say it's memorable, but yeah, there were a couple things we did, and then Rod McEwen. Um, a few years after I wrote, sometimes contacted me to write a, another verse to make it longer. He had a singer he was promoting, and so I wrote a, a second verse to it. I never, I never saw that. <laughs> really. I, God, I don't even know if I can remember it, but it's written down somewhere. So uh, yeah, but I, I didn't really, um, y- you know, feel passionately about pursuing a career in songwriting but uh, maybe i listen. I probably could have with the songs that are coming out now. I can certainly <laughs> match those any day. <laughs> well, that was I nice. saw
2: this wonderful clip from some television show where Karen explains how the song oh. was created. I thought that was really, really neat.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, at the time they were, they were very big, and, and my dad was too, and they were so impressed with him. And they were huge fans of his. And I think even when they um, won their first Grammy for Best Newcomer, my dad presented it, didn't he? I think he, he presented their Grammy to them as, so. as Newcomers of the Year. So they had a, a relationship going and a mutual admiration. It was, it was nice. That's
2: really neat. Yeah. One of the things that is interesting interest to me is what he felt were some of his uh, most cherished music memories or moments does anything come to mind that was particularly meaningful to him?
3: I mean, you know, the thing that I that impressed me about him was that he, other composers, other people in the business, he was he was giddy knowing them. You know, when Quincy Jones would call, he'd be Quincy's on the phone. It was like, you know, he he was just always so um, impressed with his luck that he just happened to. You know, do this, and of course, luck had very little to do with it. I think, but um, he his humility he just he just loved being around other musicians and other people, and he he supported them. He was impressed by them, and he his door was always open, which is, is something kind of unusual in in the business. <clears throat> you know, everybody's so protective, and um, they don't want to share in the glory. And he was somebody who really. Um, that wasn't going on for him. He, he just was so happy to be around. Mm. You know.
4: He opened doors for many, many people in the music business. Uh, Quincy, uh, Michelle Legrand. Um, the composers from Europe couldn't get over how generous he was because as Felice said, they're all so protective of their own little space, but he wanted to share the wealth with anybody who was good and talented. So, it
3: all worked out. But I don't think he ever, um, that I can remember, there was not one particular score that he did that you know stood out. Or everything he worked on, he was excited about at the time, and uh, which was nice. And I remember when he started doing some animated things. He did a few things for Disney that um, that he got really excited about. Anything new that he'd start. Very excited, very excited. And when he did uh, Victor and Victoria, that was his, you know, and knew he liked the challenges. And um, so he, visibly he would, be, he would be all excited and, and uh, it was fun to, to be around him.
4: He loved to breathe life into the visual image. That was his turn on. Give him an image on the screen and then he would bring it to life.
0: So you are listening to Felice and Ginny Mancini on the Music History Project. We are talking lots about Henry Mancini and what it was like growing up in that family. Very cool stuff. Um, we actually have the full interview in its entirety on nam.org. And it's pretty cool to see the video component along with the audio. So you should definitely check that out. Head over to nam.org, namm.org slash library and search for Mancini and they'll both pop up and either one will have the full interview.
2: You know, Ginny was uh, mentioning that she was one of uh, Mel Torme's backup singers, The Meltones, which, by the way, is a fantastic backup group for a guy named Mel Torme. And um, there's a great song called Submit Mixer Putty Putty that was not a big hit for him. But uh, I just absolutely love that song because I know that Ginny's in the background doing the oohs and the ahs. And it's pretty, pretty fun. Um, you know, it's really neat. Uh, she and uh, Henry actually met when both of them were working for a uh, very famous big band during the swing era called Tex Beneke. And Tex um, was actually uh, one of the sidemen for the Glenn Miller Orchestra. And after he became so popular on his own, he started his own orchestra, which was actually pretty famous for a long while. Uh, very interesting beginning uh, for both of their careers. And interesting how they both developed, as well as the passion that they had for helping other people in and around them. And I think that the music advocacy element uh, of both of them and, of course, their daughters – really sprang from that, wanting to help each other. And in the early days, there were a lot of problems with how compensation was dealt out and how people were being paid and how contracts were being written. You know, way back before Sinatra, the the singers worked for the band. You know, it was Chick Webb and Ella Fitzgerald. But after Sinatra and his popularity, it was, you know, Frank Sinatra with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. You know, all that switched sort of overnight. And what was left behind were the contracts that were still in place. So even if somebody made a million dollars uh, for a band, it didn't necessarily mean that they made any more than the $35 for that recording. And um, so that was definitely an issue. And I was made aware of this in the early 90s, actually a little bit before that, I think late 80s, when the Society of Singers, um, solicited my help with the program, and I learned that two singers that I knew very well from the big band era, they were brothers, uh, although they spelled their last names differently, uh, Bob and Ray Eberly. Um, not the Everly Brothers, by the way, way before them, um, but both of them had big hits with two different bands. Ray sang for the Glenn Miller Orchestra and Bob sang for the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra before Sinatra. And they had a couple of big, big hits. And neither of them had any compensation other than the $35 for that first recording date. So they both died penniless uh, in the early 80s. And when they did, I think it really shook a lot of people in the in and around that circle that said, this isn't fair and there's got to be something that we can do about it. And guess who stepped up to do something about it? So let's segue back into the interview and have Jenny talk about the Society of Singers. Part of the reason that I'm here is that both of you have headed organizations that have really helped uh, in music making and, um, and to support those people who have become music makers. And of course, that's near and dear to Nam's heart. So I thought maybe we could spend a little bit of time just talking about those organizations, if you don't not mind. Um, Mrs. Mancini, can you tell us a little bit about the Society of Singers and the idea behind it?
4: Yes, the Society of Singers was born uh, out of a need to help singers who had no money, had no pension, had nothing to support them financially. And there were famous singers who were paid maybe $35 a session and their sides are heard all over the world every day and they got nothing for it after the initial recording. So we organized, a a small group of us got together and said let's do something so we organized and we spent two years just putting the nuts and bolts together before we went public and then we went public with honoring the great lady, you know, uh, Ella, with the Ella. She, um, She epitomizes the best in the vocal arts. And uh, that was the beginning.
2: Now, was she involved with the organization as well?
4: No, she was very supportive, and her foundation was supportive, and I think still is. But no, she was too busy doing her thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an amazing thing because I I often thought that many of the people who heard about the SOS it was the first time that they realized that there was a need out there as you're saying there were many famous well-known people who really needed some help with uh, medical aid and and that sort of thing was that a surprise to you i mean you grew up in it so maybe you knew about well
4: i don't think singers were ever i don't think they ever thought about their future. They were too busy recording and entertaining and doing what they did. Where, as opposed to the musicians who protected themselves and the songwriters who protected themselves, so every time you hear a tune on the radio ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching for everybody but the singer. So it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. Every now and then there's something that comes up in in Washington uh, to try to remedy it, but It doesn't seem to come to pass, so.
2: Were you surprised at the outpouring of support that you received when the SOS went public?
4: Well, the outpouring was to honor, you know, the vocal artistry of Ella Fitzgerald, and from there um, everybody just kind of wanted to be at all the SOS functions. They were very warm and tender and musically the best.
2: Very nice. Um, Felice, maybe we can uh, ask you a little bit about your your endeavors.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: There are a few organizations that you have been a very big part of, and I wonder how you got involved with that to begin with.
3: At a certain point, I started getting interested in, in the nonprofit area a friend of mine asked me to volunteer at a youth center of his. And so I started doing that and I became the uh, unofficial volunteer development director. I didn't even know what that meant at the time. You know, if he had told me that it was about raising money, I would have said, forget it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I said, okay, sure, you know, I'll do anything I can. So I, I realized that there was a lot to learn and I started learning. I went to UCLA and took a certification course, and I got into the whole fundraising world, and I I took to it. I liked it. I can write fairly well, and um, so I started pursuing that. It just made sense to me at the time, and it felt good. You know, there was a need, and so, um, and uh, so I had that background, and then when I was approached to lead the Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation, which was 14 or so years ago, I had I had the background; I, I could do it, and I combined the things that I love to do, which was, you know, the fundraising, the nonprofit work, and then music. So it was a big adventure, and I and I loved it. And it was so perfect uh, that I, you know, I say I fell into it, but of course I don't. I don't believe you fall into things; you just say yes to opportunities. So I've learned to say yes to a lot of things that I, I wouldn't have. But it's just been a really. Um, you know, meaningful way to spend my, my time and my life and, and, you know, with NAM and with all the people I've met because we work, since we're specific to music products, I mean, we, we work with NAM very closely. And our relationship's been very rewarding. And just the people in the music products and, you know, music industries, it's, um, it's nice to be around them all the time and to support each other and because of what we do we do support the industry as a whole and um, you know and in turn they we all work together for the advocacy part and um, it's just right now it's the longer I stay in it with seeing what's happening in the schools and all that stuff it's just um, you just get so um, riled up and you know, there are things you can do. I mean, it's such a huge area, such a huge problem, keeping music in the schools and the arts. So I think it's a, it's a worthy goal, and I think we can do it. I think the, you know, the private sector has to be involved because we can't depend on, on the, the government to do everything. So, um, and there's such a demand for what we do. So I'm just, you know, I'm just along for the ride and I'm happy to be part of it and to, to be part of the solution to the, to the problem. And, but uh, you know, as with anything, it's all about the relationships you make along the way and, and it's just been really rewarding for me.
2: That's really neat. Yeah. Can you tell us about a little bit of the background of Mr. Holland and how that uh, came about?
3: Well, the movie, of course. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's, it's ironic because Michael Kamen, uh, who passed away, uh, tomorrow will be the anniversary of his death, seven years. So he started it as a direct result of, of writing the score to the film. And uh, he realized he went to public schools in New York, and at that time music education was part of the package, and it was freely given to him, and he wanted to make sure that it was freely given to kids in future generations. So once he realized it was a huge problem, uh, he he wanted to help, and he understood that he couldn't attack it from, uh, you know, a, a systemic sort of way. He he couldn't fix music education or or anything on a big level. But what he could do was a real simple thing, which was to you know buy an instrument, give it to the kid. They could have it immediately, and it would help strengthen the whole program. So I, I admire that he picked he focused on one thing, makes it easier for me, I'll tell you, but um, sometimes that's the one thing that uh, can really make a difference in in the program. And it shows the schools that you know other people are paying attention that they're cared about, when a kid gets a new instrument to play, when they've been playing on something that's you know old and crummy and falling apart, and they get this new thing, and uh, it really it changes their whole attitude about playing music. First of all, it sounds better. It looks better. They can be proud. So it's, it's you know, a bunch of things go into it. But Michael saw that. And he said, he said, when you give a child an instrument, it's like watering a flower, you know. And you see them play and start to appreciate it. And uh, it does something to your whole character. Your whole being is transformed. And he knew that as a musician, I mean, you know, as my dad did. So uh, he he wanted to spread that around. So that's how it started, and uh, I think he'd be very pleased with, you know, what's I think happened. So too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah.
2: What have you seen as some of the milestones as far as the success of the organization?
3: Well, because we're so focused on just one thing, uh, we we can only measure our success in, in the number of schools that we touch and the number of kids that, that have access to the instruments. And because an instrument lasts for so long, you can give it to a school and there are, you know, three or four generations of of kids that are going to be able to to use it if you get a good instrument, which we buy good ones. And um, so, uh, you know, our success is just measured by the, the number of kids that we know got a chance to do something they wouldn't have done without us. So you know, the more kids that get to play, the more instruments we get out there. The more kids will use them, and over time, that keeps going and going and going. Um, you know, and it has an impact on the whole program, actually down to the community level. Um, when a when a school gets that kind of notoriety, when you know, when they get an award from us, it's it's a big deal in many communities, and there's press about it locally and all that, and people pay attention. They say, "Oh, well." Maybe this program is worth supporting. And let's give them a little more or let's, you know, the, they get their due. And, and that excites everybody in the school. So on many levels, it helps to, to build something that's going to last. Because you don't want to take something away from somebody that's uh, having a good time with it. So programs that are being cut are the ones that aren't getting that juice, you know, that, aren't, that don't have that level of uh, support. So, if people see that a program is being supported, they in turn will support it, and they're uh, very—they don't want to let it go. You know, so it—it works on many levels that way. So we feel successful just being there for for the schools. Um, There's a a huge need. We have maybe three times as many applications for our support this year that we did last year. So that's that's not a great indicator of what's going on in education, but it just shows that what we do is important. And sometimes we're the last place to turn for many schools. So I just keep going and try to raise that money and, and get to keep it going, keep the instruments in there.
1: It's fantastic to listen to them talk. You can really feel that emotion and the passion that they have for music education and making sure that everyone gets that uh, equal opportunity to experience the, the love and beauty of that is music um and you know even you know their father loved helping and promoting other musicians and they just stepped right in and keep doing that uh kind of in his name in a way uh so it's great to hear their passion on that next up we're gonna uh continue hearing from jenny and felice a little bit more just about their thoughts on music education in the school systems and just the importance that it uh, holds for kids growing up and uh, just more about the music education so here they are
2: I was a friend of Don Johnson so I was mm. so proud oh. with, uh, when you were awarded the uh, the uh, oh. the, pro- the program award last the-
3: year. Yeah. Well, tell me about Thank that. you. Thank you. Well, you know, I wasn't familiar with with him, and I didn't, I didn't really um, read the publications. But when I was approached uh, by Sid, uh, you know, of course I was honored. And anything that happens at Nam, I want to be part of, and it was going to be presented at Nam. And so it wasn't until afterwards that I got more feedback about how you know what a great person he was. And um, how many people knew him and what he meant to the industry. So, um, you know, Don Johnson Service Award, it's, it, it's meaningful. You know, when you, when you serve others, especially in the music community, it's nice to be recognized for that. So, um, and I, I got a lovely note from his family and everything. Oh, nice.
4: Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's nice. You can
3: imagine how proud
4: I am. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, a lot both, of
3: awards in this family.
2: <laughs> uh, yes, I saw, I, I saw a familiar-looking statue behind you. So, yes. <laughs> uh, well, you both have that, that feeling of helping other people and contributing to uh, their life and music, which I think is, I mean, how do you put that into words, that being able to bring music and support people who are interested in bringing music into their lives?
4: Well, I think if you can take a young person and hand them something to bang, pluck, bow, string, sing, whatever, it's, it's, it's a form of expression that they otherwise <clears throat> may not be able to expose. And I, um, music to me is just part of, it, it's the only international language. Um, Without music, I, I don't think there's much point.
3: Yeah. I mean, music, you know, we all, who doesn't love music, you know, but pa- listening passively to music is one, one thing. Uh, being able to express yourself through it, to, you know, to play, to sing, to, to you know, use an instrument to express it is a whole other level of, of joy. I mean, when you can do that, um, you've, you feel like you've accomplished something. So you become part of another family of, of players, people who actually make music. So I think that's, um, it gives people another uh, tool another in, their, in their toolbox. You know, everybody can listen, but to play, that's a special kind of a thing that not everybody can do. So um, either way we're all connected to it. And you know, it resonates with everyone. And the people that, that donate to, to my organization, to Society of Singers, whoever, every person has some story connected to music. Which, you know, their motivation's different, but music connects everybody that way. So whatever, you know, emotionally, they, the reasons they give, um, it, it all has to do with something with music in their lives. Arts and
4: sciences are interdependent on one another. And yet, in academia, the sciences are over here, the arts are over here. Makes no sense to me. We, had, we have academies of arts and sciences. Check out the results of, of somebody that's turned on by art music. And I don't know what's wrong with our educational system that doesn't understand the importance of, of, expression, in in a human being. You write it. You dance it. You sing it. You paint it. You draw it. You.
3: People don't get it. <laughs> yeah, it's we have to educate people. Yeah, I think that's the thing.
2: And what element of education is it that you're striving for? Because I know for the NAM organization, you know, it. Uh, we have polls out there that say. 98 percent of the people who um take the poll wish they played an instrument if they don't already you know so it's sort of everybody wants to be engaged in it so our goal is to try to figure out what that gap is and try to narrow it you know well i'm too old okay well there's groups that do that well i'm too young okay there's groups that do that you know so that's sort of our shtick and what direction we're going. What is, what is the area that you need I to I
3: think, you know, the younger you get a child into music, that will just flow naturally. They'll play as a kid and they'll continue throughout their life. So that's why I think music education in the classroom is where you have to start. It would be nice to start at home when the kid is an infant and have the parents, but, you know, you can only hope for so much. But, you know, all kids have to go to school. So since you've got a captive audience there, why not give them everything to help them in the future? I'm sure nobody would disagree with me, but, you know, everybody's fighting for their piece of it now, and it's impossible. I I think if we look at education the way it is now, it's just not really working that way. So I vote to just dismantle the whole system and start over and do it right. You know, why not? <laughs> uh, and I know people agree with that, too. But um, it's just it's kind of an uphill battle. But if you, I think if you start with the kid, you know, school's a place that it all starts.
4: Well, in our home, it started with the ABCs. Only ABC is middle C. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that's that. good. Yeah, yeah, I think
3: I, I was fortunate because, you know, it just happened to be always in our family. Um, so that's why we fortunate ones are the ones that are trying to help others, you know, have that in their lives, too.
2: So w- one of the things that you said that I thought was interesting is that the challenge isn't so much necessarily educating the end user, it's Finding your position with that time during the school year, with that time during the budget, you know, that sort of thing. Is that how you view your goals?
3: Well, since that's really specific to my job is, you know, kids in school having core curriculum, music and arts. Right. Um, that's, That's my focus. Now, other people may have a different focus. I mean, it's all important, you know, um, music, science, you know, physical education, whatever it is, it's all important. So everybody, I guess it's the squeaky wheel thing, you know, and every community is different. And um, so whoever makes the most noise is going to get what they they need. Um, It's not easy. It's a very complicated issue. So we focus on one part of it. Um, you know, LA Phil or whatever. I mean, you know, my mom's a big uh, uh, proponent of of their work and has been with them for a long time. Um, you know, they all have education divisions. They all have their model, their way of doing things. So there are thousands of different groups. You know, working towards the same end goal. We just have different ways of doing it. So. Hopefully, and you know, we can we work together. We work apart. We it just you know, it's a huge, huge arena. Yeah. Uh, often confusing, sometimes.
4: I would off. I would like to see a classroom of children when they're learning to read words. I'd like equal time learning to read music, because I think throughout their lives it would give them an edge. It's a simple thing, but. Doesn't happen.
2: And then, um, speaking from the other uh, aspect, which is the reward of supporting organizations like this. I know that for you, I remember reading in one of the SOS uh, newsletters um, the thank you notes that came from people who were grateful for the work that was help. done. And, and I know that for you, you, you know, the children that pick up an instrument, the parents who respond by saying, This child, you know, was having these behavior problems, and now look, and, you know, focused and disciplined. I mean, so the reward of participating in this is got to feel good. And I wonder if you could both just tell me your own thoughts about that.
4: Well, I recently attended um, YOLA which means Youth Orchestras LA, and I watched a group of children who each had made a paper violin and in making the paper violin they learned everything there was about the instrument, the strings, everything about the instrument. When the class was over they were told to reach under their chairs and under their chairs was a real violin that they now could play and understand and it was, it was an amazing thing to, to behold. It was quite emotional.
3: Plus, these kids are given very little in their lives, so just you know, having something of their own to hold and play like that. Um, but you're right, I mean, I hear every day from all sorts of people. You know, our donors, uh, teachers, not so much the kids, they're not as articulate, but the teachers actually have the best stories. I love hearing from them the most because they're the ones who, who have applied. They're the ones that put all the, the blood, sweat, and tears into you know, getting this grant. And they, they know what it means. And um, they can articulate very well uh, the impact it had. So that's what I, I usually share with our donors, what the, what the teachers say. And these poor teachers, they're given so little, you know, they have to go so over and above what, what they should just to be able to teach music. So they're very appreciative, and they see their students um, every year, the ones who, who have music, the ones who don't. They can see the differences. Um, so they, they get it. So I love hearing from them the most. I love, and I love helping them the most, because they're the ones who need it, these poor people. <laughs> <laughs> Teachers, whoa.
2: Well, I greatly appreciate the fact that you both have taken your passion and applied it to helping other people, especially as it comes to uh, making music, because I know for one, having music is part of my life. You know, benefits not only me, but my kids and the people around me. And I'm sure you hear that quite a lot and feel it yourselves. So, absolutely. Uh, I'm just tickled that we had a chance to hang out a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about this.
3: Thank you. And as I said, anything for NAM. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right. Well, that will conclude this episode of the Music History Project. And I'm so glad we had the opportunity to uh, play for you this fantastic interview, uh, as part of the oral history program here at NAM with Ginny and, uh, her daughter. And, you know, it's really neat to, uh, to listen to that passion. And I'll tell you what it reminds me of is that glorious day where I got to go to their home and to, uh, to meet them both. And also, I must say, it was rather fun to just take a look around at the amazing amount of awards, Grammys, and Oscars, and unbelievable accolades, not just for Henry, but for the both of them as well. So it was a really, really special treat, and I'm so glad that we could share that with you today.
1: And also to kind of plug a little bit of the full interview and video, you can see some of those awards in that video. So if you want to check it out, you can see that there. Uh, but yeah, it was just fantastic to hear their stories. Um, you can really tell how much police loved her father and looked up to him and just the uh, the impact that he had on her life. Uh, and then just hearing the passion that they both have of, Knowing that they want to continue this fight for music education and the availability of it all for, for any kid uh, in the country is just a fantastic, uh, fantastic interview to listen to.
0: And I think that's my biggest takeaway from this is just the importance of music education. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know the importance of music education. But if not, and you have kids... Get them started on any instrument. It's only going to help in the future with anything and everything. And if you're older and you've never tried music, it's never too late to try. So thank you so much for listening, and you'll hear again from us in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino.
1: And Ashley Allison.
0: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at librarynam.org.